Agutavach, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Learning Hour with Shmuel Chaim. Um, we're up to day 83 and day 84 of Praying with Joy 4. Unification through Shabbos. Throughout the Torah, the Jewish people are referred to as B'nai Yisrael. Only here in Shemai 1631 are they referred to as B'nai Yisrael, the house, as Beis Yisrael. My apologies, Beis Yisrael, the house of Israel. Keeping Shabbos unifies B'nai Yisrael so, they, so that they are all as one family. And this makes them worthy of the description, House of Israel. And so, there is another connection between these two verses, verses 30 and 31. When the people kept the Shabbos, they were capable of becoming a unified people, Beis Yisrael. When the Mon did not appear on Shabbos, the people were concerned that it might never fall again. And this concern greatly disturbed their rest on Shabbos. Then, when some of the people went out to gather mon on Shabbos, Hashem informed Maisha that although no mon had fallen on Shabbos, it would still fall during the week. After this reassurance, B'nai Yisrael were no longer worried and were able to rest calmly for the remainder of Shabbos. This verse emphasizes, and the nation rested on the seventh day. Only now did they experience true rest. Day 84, the house of Israel called it Mon, and it was shaped like coriander seeds, white, and its flavor was like a wafer fried in honey. Shemais 16.31 Principle of Emunah and Bitachin derived from this verse. The sanctity of our food is in accordance with the level of Emunah and Bitachin of both the individual and the community. Without name, form, or taste. This verse has three main elements. One, it identifies the man by its name. Two, it, in, it describes the man's form. Three, it describes its taste. Until now, man had been lacking all three of these elements. The man had never been referred to by this name before. Prior to this verse, man was always referred to simply as it. Moreover, the Torah did not describe its form. Rather, the Torah referred to it only in terms of its relationship to the ground like frost on the earth, in Shemai 16.14, because previously the form of the man was not something that, that could be described or defined. Finally, finally, until now, the Torah did not mention that the man had a specific flavor. Just as a nursing infant experiences many different flavors from his mother's milk, similarly, any time the Jews ate from the man, they could taste a variety of flavors. Mun received its distinctive honey wafer taste only at this time. We are now up to Enlighten Our Eyes, Chapter 1, Part 3. Yosef Atzadik, Paragen of Holiness. One of the most handsome men ever was Yosef Atzadik. Breathtakingly beautiful, his name is also synonymous with unblemished holiness in the face of agonizing trials. The drama of Yosef's story begins to unfold when he is only 17 years old. Suddenly, he finds himself torn away from the sheltered environment of his parental home, wrenched from his illustrious family. Alone and among uncaring masters, miles away from his loving father, who was inconsolably mourning him as dead, he is brought down to Mitzrayim, a land steeped in immorality. Here, he was sold as a slave to the wealthy and prominent Potiphar, who quickly promoted him to stewardship, over all, his emper over, over all his enterprises and home affairs, Potiphar, not slow in appreciating the blessing of having this gifted manager around, 
soon put everything into those capable young hands and allowed himself to sit back. His wife, however, sat up. The unsurpassed beauty of this newly arrived slave piqued her interest. She observed how implicitly her husband trusted him to carry out tasks in her very own home. Inexorably, her mind became obsessed with the sole goal of somehow getting Yosef to sin. She noted, however, a technical problem. His eyes were always averted, making the ultimate statement not interested. Undeterred, she tried verbal persuasion. Then she started changing her attire three times a day. Rather pointless, of course. How could she hope to captivate a boy who never looked at her? But this formidable temptress, relentlessly enticing Yosef to yield to her advances, was implacably determined to somehow get him to look at her, even just once, as it says in the Midrash Rabbah 710. So she stepped up the pressure, making life successively harder for him, threatening his refusals with the direst reprisals. She positioned a skewer right at his throat to coerce him to look in her direction just to save himself from danger. It was all in vain. Yosef remained impervious, steel-like, immovable, aloof, brimming with love for his creator. From the Midrash, it's apparent that all of his trials, trials way beyond the endurance limits of later generations, the hardest Nisayan that Yosef had was that of guarding his eyes. Yosef calmly and conscientiously continued carrying out his duties until that cruel woman, her every design thwarted by his unbending no, had him thrown into prison on charges of attempting to seduce her, his master's innocent wife, quote, unquote. In the dungeon, in prison, Yosef's problems were far from over. This cruel woman still would not leave him alone. She visited the prison regularly to weaken his resolve, his resolve and to tempt him to succumb. She warned him in explicit terms of the consequences of his, ups, of his obstinacy. So you think this is the last of your woes, she menaced. If you don't exceed, I will have you bound in iron chains, bent over and unable to stand upright. I will have you blinded. She went on and on. Yosef was as firm, unmoved and unimpressed as ever, still joyously serving his maker with love and awe. Going all out to cajole him to look at her even just that once, even for a split second, she found herself powerless against the iron resolve in the wellsprings of his noble soul. Never did he mar the perfection of his purity. Now is it a wonder that we speak of him as Yosef Atzadik? Turnabout. Suddenly there was an astounding turnabout in Yosef's fortune. After twelve long years, his eyes and, and soul still absolutely clean and untarnished, Yosef was hurried from his incarceration. By order of the king, he was hastily groomed, suitably attired, and rushed to the palace to stand before Pharaoh, mighty king of Egypt. At dizzying speed, he was raised from wretched prisoner to the rank of second-in-command of the whole Egyptian kingdom. The king's signet ring was placed on his finger, he was arrayed in linen robes, and driven through the capital streets. Can you picture the scene in ancient Egypt, awaiting the gala procession of an entourage? Crowds of jubilant citizens fill the streets. The rejoicing is palpable as the throngs begin their chanting. The Midrash Rabbah 98.18 describes how the daughters of the noblemen peeped out of their windows and threw their fine jewelry piece by piece into his royal chariot in the hope that this mesmerizingly handsome new viceroy might chance to look at them. 
Throughout all this exotic pomp, throughout all this exotic pomp and pageantry, Yosef's eyes remained lowered. His self-discipline is timeless. Targum Yerushalmi tells us how the daughters of the aristocrats exclaimed to one another in sheer amazement, Oh, see this pious Yosef who does not follow his eyes or the temptations of his heart. Okay, we are up to the Shleisha Ma'amarim, Three Discourses, Part 3. The Mishnah tells us in Avais 3.17, To what may a man whose wisdom is greater than his deeds be compared? He is like a tree whose branches are many, but whose roots are few. The wind may come and topple it. Let us try to understand this simply. What is the measure for knowing whether a man's wisdom is greater or his deeds are greater? For it would seem that this Mishnah suggests that it is not permitted to learn the Holy Zayar and other Sfarim that speak of sublime spiritual matters in the higher spiritual worlds of Atsilus, Beria, and Yetzira. Will we ever ascend into, those, into these worlds? Why is this study not considered a case where one's wisdom is greater than his deeds? Yet, Holy Sfarim tell us that a Jew has a soul which is divided into five levels, Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, and Yechida. The first three levels reside in man's body. The Nefesh dwells in the liver, the Ruach in the heart, and the Neshama in the brain. But the Chaya and the Yechida are much greater and holier than the body and cannot be contained by it. Instead, they dwell above the body, surrounding it from the outside. It is not that they are extraneous and man doesn't need them, God forbid. To the contrary, they are central to man and to his Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. We may understand this by way of analogy from the physical world, even though the analogy is not perfectly suited to matters of the soul. Consider a funnel that is used to pour water or wine into the narrow neck of a bottle. It is only the small end of the funnel that is narrow enough to fit into the opening of the bottle, but the main body of the funnel, its wide top, where the water or wine collect, remains above the bottle. Similarly, with the light and the kedusha that exist within a Jew, which are his main component and essence, it is the supernal kedusha from the highest of spiritual worlds which undergoes a tzimtzum, contraction and constriction, until it becomes the spirit of the B'nai Nevi'im, and then constricts even further until it is engendered in just one small spark of the diminished spirit of B'nai Nevi'im still present in our generation. A part of this Kedusha enters into the body according to the degree that the body has been refined and purified to contain such spirituality. It then becomes the Neshama in the brain, the Ruach in the heart, and the Nefesh in the liver each vessel receiving according to its level of reception for Kedusha. The liver and other coarse parts of the body receive only small amounts of Kedusha comprising the nefesh that is needed to keep the body alive. The heart, which is more refined, receives a, pure, a purer level of light that forms the ruach and the midos. The brain, which has an even greater capacity to receive, absorbs a light that becomes the neshama and holy das. From the top to the bottom it is a kind of funnel, and the main part of the light and Kedusha is above him. That which we call the Yechida and the Chaya corresponding to the wide top of the funnel, for it is impossible for the body to contain their great amount of light and Kedusha. It is only possible for the body to contain the Neshama, Ruach, and Nefesh, whose lights and Kedusha are more constricted. The Kedusha and light of each Jew do not begin only from the Yechida and Chaya, 
Rather, they are drawn down from the highest worlds, even from our Father, our King, Hashem Himself, and then then consatinate and constrict down to the level of His own Yechida and Chaya. However, since we are speaking of the particulars of each individual Jew, concerning the lights and Kedusha that are higher than the Yechida and Chaya, one cannot say that these are Reuven's or Shimon's the way one can say it is the neshama of Reuven or the ruach of Shimon. This is expressed in the previous analogy of the funnel. Even though there are large quantities of wine in the barrel that is above the funnel, which is indeed essential, the source of the wine from which to pour into the funnel, still that wine is not associated with the particular bottle underneath the funnel. The barrel is a domain unto itself, and the wine in it belongs to the barrel. Even the stream of wine that flows out of the barrel is associated with the barrel, and not with a particular bottle. Only the wine in the funnel is associated with the bottle, since the funnel constricts the wine precisely in order to flow into that particular bottle, according to its own features and type. Similarly, when we are speaking about the particulars of each Jew and his individual neshama, from the neshama of Klal Yisrael, which God willing we will be discussing in the other discourses, when its light and Kedusha come down to the level of Yechida and Chaya, even though they are still above the body, just as the funnel is above the bottle, still, one can start associating them with that specific person, saying it is the Chaya of Yechida of Reuven or Shimon. That which is above the Yechida and Chaya, however, is above any personal association and cannot be called by anyone's specific name. We will now start... Lessons in Tanya, Chapter 4, Part 2 Until now, it has been explained that the Divine Soul has three garments in which it clothes itself, the thought, speech, and action of Torah and the Commandments. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to state that, unlike physical garments, which are less important than their wearer, the garments of the Divine Soul are even loftier than the soul which wears them. Thus, wearing its garments, i.e. thinking and speaking words of Torah, and acting in performance of the commandments elevates the soul to a higher level. For, since Tyre and the commandments are one with God, the Jew, by donning the garments of Tyre and the commandments, also becomes united with him. And also becomes united with him. In the Alter Rebbe's words, Now, these three garments, deriving from the Tyre, and its commandments, though they call, though they are called merely garments of the nefesh ruach and neshama, im gavaya Nevertheless, their quality, the quality of the garments of the Torah and its commandments, is infinitely higher and greater than that of the nefesh ruach and neshama themselves. For as explained in the Zayar, Tyra and the Holy One, blessed be He, are truly one. Pirush, the Uraisa, He Chachmasai, Ritzaine Shal Akadish Baruchu, Vakadish Baruchu, Bechwadi Vyatzmai, Kulachad. This means, since Tyra is the wisdom and will of the Holy One, blessed be He, i.e., the wisdom of the Tyra expresses God's wisdom, its practical application and laws, for example, whether or not a particular object is kosher, express his, expresses his will. It is one with his glory and essence.
כי הוא היודע והוא המידע וכולי, כמו שכוסב לאו בשם הרמב״ם. Since he is the knower, the knowledge, and the known, as explained above in chapter 2 in the name of Maimonides, that these three aspects separate and distinct in terms of, in, of human intellect are, as they relate to God, one and the same entity. They are all godliness. The Torah, being God's intellect, is thus one with God himself. And when a Jew understands and unites himself with it, he is united with God himself. From the above we understand that since the garments of thought and speech of Torah study and the active performance of the commandments are united with God, they are even higher than the soul itself. However, a question presents itself. How can it be said that in understanding Torah one comprehends God's wisdom and will when God's wisdom, like God himself, is infinitely beyond man's limited comprehension? This will now be explained. Although the Holy One, blessed be He, is called Ein Saif, infinite, and His greatness can never be fathomed, and no thought can apprehend Him at all, and so are also His will and His wisdom, infinite and unfathomable. How? How do we know this? Because it says in the Pasuk, Ein as it is written, there is no searching of his understanding. And it is also written, when you will search to understand God, will you find? And it is further written, for my thoughts are not like your thoughts, says God to man. Thus, human thought is incapable of grasping divine thought. How then can it be said that in understanding Tyra, Man grasps God's wisdom. To this thou the Rebbe answers that God compressed and lowered his wisdom, clothing it in the physical terms and objects of Torah and its commandments, so that it might be accessible to human intelligence, in order that man may thereby be united with God. Hine al amru, b'makayim sh'atamaytzeh g'dulaseh sh'alakadosh baruch hu, sham atamaytzeh Concerning this disparity between human intelligence and divine wisdom, our sages have said, Where you find the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be He, there you will find His humility. I.e., how can we approach God's greatness to find it and be united with it? How? Through His humility, by His lowering Himself to our level. God compressed his will and wisdom in the 613 commandments of the Torah and in their laws. As mentioned above, the logic of the law represents divine wisdom and the ruling divine will. And in the letter combinations of scripture, Torah, Nevim, and Ksuvim. The very letters and words of scripture contain God's will and wisdom. Wherefore, even one who is ignorant of their meaning fulfills the precept of Torah, learn, of Torah study by merrily reciting them. And God's will and wisdom are also contained in the exposition of these verses found in the Agadais and Midrashim of our sages of blessed memory. Um, let's try that again. 
Ha'adam tucha lahasik bedaita. In all of these did God compress His will and wisdom in order that every neshama or even the lower soul levels of ruach and nefesh, situated as they are in the human body, will be able to grasp them with its intellect. And in order that it, the nefesh or ruach or neshama, fulfill them as far as they can be fulfilled in action, speech, and thought. Thereby clothing itself with all its ten faculties in these three garments of the thought, speech, and action of Torah and Mitzvahs. We will stop here for lessons in Tanya. We will now go on to the Garden of Gratitude. We are now up to the Garden of Gratitude, Chapter 3. We'll be doing I Don't Understand a Thing, and this too is for the good. I don't understand a thing. This is a song we have been singing at our yeshiva for years now. I don't understand a thing. I don't understand a thing. Just believe. Just believe. That is all for the good. That all is for the good. The intellectual understanding of the difficulty is what we refer to by I don't understand a thing. When it seems really bad, I don't understand a thing. However, I can believe that it is for the good. <laughs> Whenever one encounters a test of faith, he should not expect to understand how even the smallest detail of the test is for his good. He should rely on his, on his emuna only. In this way, he will be able to give thanks to Hashem in any situation. Gratitude mitigates all harsh judgments and invokes miraculous salvations, as we've already learned. This too is for the good. The Gemara in Tractate Tainus 21a tells the famous story of Nachum Gamzu. The leaders of Israel sent him to Rome with a jewel-filled treasure chest in order to appease the Caesar, with the hope that the Caesar would rescind the many harsh decrees that he dealt the Jewish people. We hereby take the liberty of dramatizing the Gemara's telegraphic account in order to enable us to feel the immense challenge that Nachum faced. Are you guys ready? Nachum lived in a period of turmoil, when the Jewish people suffered at the hands of a vicious conqueror. Rome persecuted Israel terribly. The Jewish leaders did what they could to placate the tyrannical Caesar, who implored their fellow Jews to give as much as they possibly could for this important cause, gathering every last cent from a nation that was already downtrodden from poverty and Roman taxation. They finally amassed enough money to buy precious stones which were placed in a beautiful box. They asked, who will go on this important mission? One person answered, Nachum Ish Gamzu, he should go, because he is a righteous man who is experienced in miracles. The first lesson we learn is that whoever believes that everything is for the good is well experienced in miracles. Such a person sees miracles wherever he goes. Nachum Ish Gamzu set out on his long journey to Rome with the treasure chest filled with jewels. How, uh, um, sorry, evening fell and Nachum entered an inn to rest. In the morning he arose, opened up the treasure chest, and what did he see? Instead of shiny precious stones, he found sand mixed with rocks, straw, and dirt. What did Nachum say? This too is for the good. At first glance, such a reaction seems crazy. This too is for the good? Where's the good? The poor Jews worked so hard to scrounge together enough money 
in order to purchase this precious treasure, their hopes pinned on this crucial mission to ease the yoke of harsh decrees. Just about any person would have felt guilty. He would think, I didn't guard the treasure properly. He would look for a place to bury himself. Who knows how such a person would persecute himself for such a mistake. But here we learn another important lesson in Amuna. Even if trouble comes to a person because of his own mistake, after the fact, he should know that it was Hashem's will. We see that Nachum was a man of Amuna and that he believed everything is for the good. But what was to be done with the treasure? Lost. Go home? That's not what he did. He continued on his way to Caesar with the chest filled with sand and pebbles. As Nachum Ishgamzu was a man of pure Amuna, he knew that it was better to go as Hashem willed rather than with the precious stones that had been there previously. Nachum was a holy Tana, a, Mish- a Mishnaic sage. He was far from stupid, but he put his logic aside and continued his journey to Rome, girded with the Amuna that whatever Hashem does is certainly good. Intellectually, it was obviously preferable to go to Rome with precious stones. But he reasoned, if the Creator did this, then surely it is for the good. I don't understand what the Creator did here, but I believe. Nachamish Gamzu arrived at the entrance to Caesar's palace. The guards announced that an ambassador for the Jews had arrived with a gift for Caesar. They escorted him in with honor before Caesar, who sat among his officers and advisors. With complete confidence, Nachum presented Caesar with the gift from the Jews. Caesar opened the chest and saw that it was filled with sands, dirt, and straw. Understandably, he immediately became enraged and screamed, Insolence! Now I will kill all the Jews! First take this man out to be executed! Nachum Gamzu calmly said, This too is for the good. Astonishing. What? This too is good? That Caesar and the Romans should kill all the Jews, starting with him? Despite Caesar's rants, not a hair on a Jewish head can fall without Hashem willing it so. Only Hashem decides who lives and who dies. Therefore, Nachum could reply with no fear, this too is for the good. Even if Hashem did decide that it should happen, then he knows what he is doing and everything he does is for the good. Consequently, there is no bad in the world. None at all. Imagine that Nachum lacked the complete and steadfast Amuna that everything is for the good. He has now arrived at a predicament where he might fear that others will die because of him. Had he succumbed to the slightest measure of self-blame or self-persecution, all would truly have been lost. But Nachum was not worried or upset in the slightest. His trust in Hashem was complete. Nachum Ish Gamzu lived his emuna. There is no bad in this world, and there is nothing but Hashem. Nachum saw Hashem only. Let Caesar threaten. He is powerless without Hashem. If Hashem wants me killed, then that's fine with me. But if Hashem wills for me to live, then nothing Caesar can do will hurt me. Hashem could just as easily take Caesar's soul away. We are up to chapter 4 of Kitzel Shabbos. We're up to Havdalah and Maitzei Shabbos. Havdalah. On Maitzei Shabbos, after dark, there is a mitzvah to say the words that speak about the subject of Havdalah, 
separation. And Chazal enacted, as they did by Kiddush, to say them over a cup of wine. Havdalah is similar to Kiddush regarding the laws of the Havdalah cup and the drinking, and also that one should ideally l'chatchila make Havdalah over wine. If one does not have wine, it is permissible to make Havdalah over Chaimer Medina, conventional drink. See chapter, as we learnt in chapter 2, section 6 above. But one may never make Havdalah over bread. Even during the nine days of Av, when the rule is that ideally we give the wine to a child to drink, yet it is proper even then to give preference to wine over other drinks, even when one will need to drink it oneself. Also, it is then permitted for one to drink a revise from it, which is the minimum amount upon which one can say the bracha achreina, the after bracha. Women are also obligated in the mitzvah of Havdalah, but their custom is l'chatchila to go and hear Havdalah from a man. In a situation where she is not able to hear from a man who is making Havdalah, she should make Havdalah for herself. Some say she should not make the bracha on the ner, the candle or light. The custom is to take besamim, fragrant spices, and a ner by Havdalah. See Shulchan Aruch regarding these laws. One who did not make Havdalah on the night of Maitzai Shabbos is nonetheless still obligated to make Avdallah and should consult a Rav. Melacha on Maitzai Shabbos It is forbidden to do Melacha on Maitzai Shabbos before Avdallah. If one says, Baruch HaMavdil, Ben Kodesh L'choyl, or Atachan Antanu and Shemona Esrei, one is then permitted to do Melacha immediately. There are places where the custom is that women do not do any suing, etc. on Maitzai Shabbos. Tasting food or drink before Avdallah it is forbidden to taste food or drink except for water before Havdalah, and for this it does not help to say Amavdil. This prohibition already begins from the time that there is a doubt whether or not it is considered dark, unless one is in the middle of a meal, in which case one is permitted to continue eating even after dark as long as one did not daven Mayrev. Also, as long as one did not daven Mayrev, one says Ritzay in benching. One who has not yet eaten the third meal may perhaps rely on starting his meal even during the period of doubt of, of, doubt of darkness, Suffolk Hashicha, as long as it is not yet night. The Maitzai Shabbos meal, Malava Malka. The custom is to escort the queen on Maitzai Shabbos by eating a meal, or at least by eating Mizainis, such as cake or cookies and the like, or fruit. Some sing Zemiris and also light Neris, candles or oil lamps. Another reason for this eating is because there is a bone in one's body that is nourished solely from what one eats on Maitzai Shabbos, and it is through this bone that one will be resurrected when the dead return to life, and therefore we set aside a special eating for it. We are up to Shari Teshuvah, the gates of repentance, the second gate, the fourth way. The fourth way is as follows. When one delves into Hashem's Torah and reads from the words of the Nevi'im and Ksuvim, when he understands the pleasantness associated with their ethical teachings and sees the injunctions and punishments mentioned throughout the Torah, he will tremble over these things, prepare his heart to improve his ways and deeds, and gain acceptance by Hashem, as the Pasuk says in Yeshayahu 66.2. But to these I set my attention, to the poor and downcast in spirit, and to him who trembles at my word. Similarly, the Pasuk states concerning Yeshayahu, Yeshayahu Malachim 2, 22-11, it happened that when the king heard the words of the Torah scroll, 
scroll, he rent his garments. And concerning Ezra, the Pasuk says in the Chemya 8-9, For all the people who wept when they heard the words of the Torah, whoever does not take heed of Hashem's words, his sin will weigh heavily upon him, as the Pasuk says in Yermio 36-24. They did not fear and they did not rend their garments. Our sages of blessed memory also said in Yerushalmi Brachis 1-2, Whoever learns Torah and does not fulfill what he has learned would have been better off had his placenta been turned inward upon his face and he had never emerged into the world. Pretty harsh. The Psukim also say in Hesheia 8.12, I wrote for them the great words of my Torah, but they were regarded as something foreign. And Yermio 8.8, How can you say we are wise and Hashem's Torah is with us? Indeed, they made the quill for naught. The scribes have inscribed with it in vain. We are up to purity of speech. Chapter 3. Who? Day 44. We're going to go through the different parts of the chapter first, and then we'll start the first part of the chapter. A. About whom is it forbidden to speak Lashin Hara? <clears throat> it is forbidden to speak Lashin Hara about any Jew, regardless of their age, relation, or level of Torah knowledge. Therefore, it is forbidden to talk negatively about 1. Any from member in Klal Yisrael. 2. A non-from Jew who was raised in a non-from home. 3. A child. 4. A family member. And this includes A. One's spouse-in-laws. B. One's own parents. C. One's own children. D. One's own siblings. 5. A Yid who is no longer alive. 6. A group of Yidin. 7. Any side of a machlaikas, any side of an argument. 8. The whole of Klal Yisrael. <clears throat> B. About whom is it permissible to speak Lashin Hara? 1. A non-Jew. 2. A well-known Russia, an Apikairis. C. To whom is it forbidden to, to whom is it forbidden to speak Lashin Hara? It is forbidden to speak Lashin Hara to, to any Jew, including relatives, parents, siblings, children. 2. One's spouse. 3. To a non-Jew. D. Who should keep Hilchas Lashon Hara? Every fearing Jew, adults and children alike. E. Correcting the sin of Lashon Hara. Requiring Teshuvah for speaking Lashon Hara. So those are all the things we're going to go through in chapter 3. Every day a different thing, I guess. Day 44. <clears throat> Our history is replete with tragedies, pogroms, massacres, epidemics, bloodshed, pain, and rivers of tears. The saga is truly heartrending. Although the tsarists of our people are numerous, there is only one occurrence since the Chorban that our Chachamim have singled out for commemoration. They thus have required all of Klal Yisrael to mourn this tragedy. Which tragedy are we referring to? The death punishment of the 24,000 Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva during the seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuos. In truth, this period should have been a time of happiness and anticipation as we look forward to the receiving of the Torah. Instead, it becomes a period of remorse and mourning for all of us. Why was this tragedy singled out for commemoration as opposed to all other misfortunes in our history? Hashem wants to teach us the terrible consequences of laxity in mitzvahs ben Adam Lachaveri. In actuality, what was the sin for which the Talmudic Rabbi Akiva were so severely punished? Did they harm? 
malice or degrade their peers? No. Our Chazal enlighten us. Because they didn't accord enough honor one to another. We are required to mourn this tragedy for over a month so that we truly incorporate this profound lesson. We must seriously contemplate the severe ramifications of imperfection in our relationships with people. Hence, we learn the importance of existing, of extending honor and respect to all of Klal Yisrael. Halacha and practice. About whom is it forbidden to speak Lashon Hara? Any from member of Klal Yisrael. All Yidin are deserving of our, respe- of our respect, even if we disapprove of their lifestyles or cultures. Thus, it is also to talk negatively about any member in Klal Yisrael, regardless of their age, relation, or level of Torah. We are up to Sefer Shmir Salasha in Book 1, Amshar HaTevuna, Chapter 15. <clears throat> Lashin Hara arises from the absence of self-restraint and from a sense of futility. Futility and non-restraint. There are people who speak Lashin Hara because of Yush, a sense of futility. The Yetzirah of these people has seduced them to believe that it is impossible to abide by all of the laws of guarding the speech that comes out of one's mouth unless one withdraws completely from society, which is an impossibility. These people rely on a statement of Chazal and Gemar Bava Basra 165a, taken out of context, of course, and all of them are guilty of speaking Lashon Hara. Therefore, at a, out of a false sense of futility, they give up completely from trying to discipline their speech. Truthfully, this is a very big mistake, because if it were impossible to guard one's own speech, then why did the Torah command us to, just do, to do just that? with the emphatic force of a lav. It is very well known to everyone that HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not make demands of his creations by asking them to do something that is not possible. The Torah could have listed this discipline as being only a good character trait, like other good character traits, that are reserved only for those few people who seek to improve their character through their, throughout their lives and become better people. But the Torah did not do this. It expressed this imperative as a lav, one of the 613 mitzvahs. Therefore, most certainly man has this ability and every Jew can exercise restraint in his speech and guard his language. If only one tries, he can avoid this speech that is Lashin Hara. This is quoted in the Sifri Parshas HaZinu Devarim 32.4. He is a faithful God with no iniquity. He did not create humanity to become wicked people but rather he created them so they would be righteous people, meaning, if that was not so, God forbid, it would be an act of iniquity to give laws that could not be upheld and then punish man for not following those laws. Kahela 729 expressed this idea <clears throat> that God made man straight, but they schemed many different plans. Rabbeinu Tanchuma expresses the same thought in Parshas Bereshis 7th notation, that God made man straight, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who is righteous and just, created man in his likeness, and he created man only for the purpose that man, too, would be righteous and just. And if you were to ask, if so, then why did he create the Sahara, As the Torah teaches in Bereshus 8.21, because a person's natural disposition 
is to lean towards evil from the time of his youth. You said that he is wicked. Then how is it possible for him to become good? Answers HaKadosh Baruch Hu, You made him evil. As an infant, he did not sin. But as he grew older, he did sin. Meaning that man perpetuates himself based on his actions and circumstances. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave man the ability to exercise discipline and control himself and that his Yetzirah would function as an aid, a servant helping him in his endeavors to complete the purpose for which he was created. As the Torah teaches in Bereshus 4.7, And you, man, will rule over him, man's own Yetzirah. Shlomo HaMelech teaches in Mishlei 29.21, Someone who coddles his Yetzirah in his youth will pay for it later in who will pay for it in later life. <clears throat> and this subject is too lengthy to discuss here. How many things are there in the world that are harder and more bitter than the Sahara? because you have no direct control over them, and yet you sweeten them up? Nothing is more bitter than, tor- than tormasin, thormus beans, yet you are content to boil it and sweeten it in water seven times over until it becomes sweet. So too with the mustard seed and tselaf, a bitter green leafy vegetable. With all of their bitterness, you are willing to work with them until they become sweet. The Yetzirah, which I have given you, that you should rule over him, how much more so should you work at it until you control it completely and rule over it? So too in our circumstances. If a person sincerely makes an effort and is determined to discipline himself, not to speak unless it's necessary, and not to say anything bad or deceitful, then most certainly he will be able to achieve this goal. As Chazal have taught in Tana Develio Zuta, third parak, if a person wishes to become righteous, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will send, an angel, will send an angel to assist him and will guide him onto a path of righteousness. If a person wants to be a saint, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will send an angel to assist him and guide him onto a path towards sainthood. That which Chazal have taught in Gemara Baba Basra 165a, and all of them are guilty of speaking Lashon Hara, is quickly explained by the Gemara as, Do you think they all speak Lashon Hara? It cannot be. Rather say, they all speak with a hint of Lashon Hara, Avak Lashon Hara. The Maharsha in his Chidushe Agadais 164b further elaborates on this statement of Chazal and explains that when the Gemara stated, Everyone... It meant only if man is not careful and aware of his speech and allows his speech to follow plain human nature. Then invariably, man will trip and fail in this regard. Avak Lashonhara. This is unlike the sins of thievery and illicit relations, where even if left alone to human nature, man is able to save himself from these sins. But that is not possible in matters of speech and the sin of Lashonhara. However, God forbid, to say that Chazal meant that man cannot save himself and avoid the sin of Avak Lashonara, he just has to try. He must learn the halachas and internalize the musr in order to avoid the sin of Lashonara. Please reference the introduction to this sefer that elaborates on this subject in depth. <clears throat> Sometimes, just as a matter of habit, man will commit this sin out of a sense of futility and unrestraint. For example, he sees that people do not value at all the need to guard their speech. Because of our many, very many sins, society does not consider a misuse of speech to be a sin at all. 
society's mindset is that anything can be said at any time with no constraints. Therefore, this man weakens in his resolve and sees any effort at guarding his speech as being futile. Some good advice in this regard is for man to think about his soul. If this man and the rest of his city were suffering from a terrible sickness, God forbid, to the point, to the point that all of the city's physicians were requesting additional medical assistance and medicines to deal with this sickness, and this person heard that a world-renowned doctor who has no equal was coming to his city, and that this doctor was capable of restoring someone's health so completely that not even a trace of illness would be left, do you think for a moment that this person would be lazy in his efforts to immediately send for this doctor to come and see his sorrowful condition, how this person is at death's door, and perhaps this doctor can cure him of his sickness? And if a friend were to ask this person, why are you in so much more of a hurry than everyone else? This person would obviously answer him, you are the world's biggest fool. In a matter where my very life depends on this doctor, even if there is only a remote possibility that he can save my life, and am I obliged to think about or even consider anyone else? How much more so is this true regarding this outstanding doctor, whose expertise we have known about all along, and who is world-renowned? His ability to cure is awesome, and he can cure any devastating disease. Do you think I would throw away my life because of some fools who do not even value their own lives? And if this is true of our physical bodies, how much even more so is it true of our souls? It is well known that a person who guards his speech and does not speak bad will merit to live an eternal life in Olam Haba, as David HaMelech teaches in Tehillim. 34, 12, and 13. Go, my children. Who is the person who wants life? And who is better? And who is a better doctor than our master and teacher, David HaMelech? His memory is peace. But the opposite, God forbid, is also true. The speaker of Lashon Hara does not want life, and there is no remedy to this, etern to this eternal sickness. Even in this life, eventually, this person will have to endure tragedies and suffering because of his speech, as I wrote above, quoting the Midrash. How much more so should he not look at what other people are doing, and he should not feel a sense of futility in his efforts to discipline himself and guard the speech that comes out of his mouth.